and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. When I'm not recording this podcast, I work as a mental performance coach with both business people and elite performers in sports. I love what I do for a living, so I fired up this podcast to find out how are people intentionally setting their mind for performance. We aim to unpack just that and bring intentional gems to you, the listener. Now, before we get started, I just want to tell you how you might be able to help us out. First, we love that you're listening. Thank you for doing so. If you could share on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is your social, we will be forever grateful. The second way you can help us is by going over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you're going to find out how you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a few dollars a month to really help us continue to make this podcast as good as it possibly can be. So thank you all for listening. And I'm really excited to present uh, today's guest to you and introduce today's guest to you. Malcolm Brogdon is today's guest on the podcast, and Malcolm is one of those guys who I have on my list of people that I would just love to chat with. So we met a couple years ago, and since our first meeting, I was just blown away by his overall intelligence, his ability to think beyond the game and think the game. Uh, He was selected in the second round of the 2016 NBA draft by the Milwaukee Bucks. He was a 36th overall pick, and this was coming after being named ACC Player of the Year and ACC Defensive Player of the Year for the University of Virginia. He had an amazing college career and was overlooked by every single NBA team when it came to the draft. But what happened next was truly remarkable. Malcolm ended up winning the Rookie of the Year, his rookie year, and he was the first person to do that as a second rounder since 19. 56. So it was really unprecedented what he did as a rookie. And his NBA accolades and his college accolades are truly phenomenal. But one of the reasons I really wanted to chat with Malcolm is because of the type of person he is, his upbringing. So as you're going to find out quickly in this conversation, he comes from a family that is highly educated and values not just college education, but continuing education. And he was fortunate growing up to be around civil rights activists, including his grandpa, who helped change the narrative for African-Americans in this 
country and not just the narrative, but the life and the lifestyle and the freedom for African-Americans in this country. So he's going to talk about all that. He's going to certainly talk about his parents and his brothers and how they influenced him. So Malcolm's got an incredible journey and the beauty of his journey is that it's just getting started. So I'm so excited to present to you, Malcolm Brogdon. Malcolm, thanks for coming on the podcast. Excited to chat with you as I thought about basketball guys who I would love to chat with. You are pretty high on the list and we'll get into why that is. Uh, but when I think about your career up up until now, uh, you're someone who certainly thinks the game. Uh, you use your mind and I know your story a little bit and I'm excited to share your story uh, with the people that listen to this podcast. Uh, where I'd love to start with you is is really where your story began. And I know uh, you come from an interesting family uh, with an interesting history as it pertains to this country. So give us some background and, and just let people know a little bit about what life was like for you growing up in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, first, I want to say thank you for having me on. Um, I'm excited. I'm always excited to share my story. Um, but for me, uh, starting off, uh, you know, overall, I come from a family that's very uh, based on very, very focused on education, uh, very focused on, um, you know, making sure that you're educated, that my family believes that education is the is the best weapon you can have to survive and be successful in this world. Um, but it, it really starts with my grandfather. Um, he, he passed recently, but um, he is the patriarch of the he was the patriarch of the family. Um, he was an AME bishop. And marched beside Dr. King uh, in the civil rights. So he's, you know, he's a, he was a very, uh, a very, he was a, he was a giant among men. That's what, that's the, the, you know, expression I like to use with him. Cause he was amazing. He was really a, a guy that was so disciplined in his approach. He was so detail oriented. He was so focused and driven on, um, you know, things he wanted to see happen, how he wanted to see the world change and shaped. And, uh, you know, that he made that his priority his entire life. Um, my, my grand and my grandmother actually, uh, was well educated as well. She had her, she got her master's from, from Michigan, um, which was unheard of for an African American woman to do that back in the day. Um, they had three daughters, uh, one of which is my mom. My mom's a middle child. Um, the oldest daughter, uh, went to, uh, went to a good school and then she went to, I think, Harvard for, for law school. My mom went to Oberlin College and then went to Indiana to get her PhD. And uh, my mom's younger sister went to Duke and then went to uh, Wharton for business school. Um, so they're very educated. Um, uh, and then my mom married my dad. Uh, they're divorced now, but um, my dad went to Oberlin. He went to Indiana for law school. So he's a lawyer right now in Atlanta. Um, and I have two older brothers. I have two older brothers. One of them went to Howard. The other one went to uh, Morehouse. Uh, they both went on to to get their law degree, so they're they're practicing law in, in Atlanta right now. Um, so you know, the, a lot of the weight has has uh, has shifted to me to to you know be impressive, to do something, to be really focused. And you know, everybody always asks, "Are you uh, are you? Do you feel pressure to be a lawyer? Do you feel pressure to go into that area of expertise?" And I don't. My family really just wants me to find something I love and work really hard at it. So you know, that's been my path growing up. It's been very much focused on, you know, God is first. God is, uh, God willing you, that, that's how you, you know, survive in this life is God blessing you, God watching over you and, and guiding you. Um, but then it comes to your education and, uh, and, you know, making sure that, you know, you stay one step ahead. You stay prepared for, 
plan B when things fall through, especially for a guy like me that's playing in the NBA. This is my dream. But, you know, you can, the ball can always stop bouncing at some point. You can get injured. You can get, you know, so many things can happen in, at, at this, in this profession. Um, so it's important to have a plan B, to have your education and to be ready to sort of transition into the next part of your life. As you go back to childhood, God, education, hard work, were there ever times where you resisted any of those, uh, just growing up and, and being a kid? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's hard learning to work hard. It's, it takes an incredible amount of discipline. It takes an incredible amount of, uh, persistence because there's, you work hard and honestly, most of the time you're going to fail. That's what you real, realize about life, but it's about getting back up. It's about continuing to, um, you know, persist and, and, um, you know, be relentless in your approach. And that's what my, my family, my mom has always taught me. And then watching my brothers grow and, uh, and work at what they do. They're persistent. They work so hard. They're so disciplined. So that's where I get all my discipline and, and hard work from. You're gonna, you're gonna fall sometimes, but you have to get up. You have to keep fighting. And, um, you know, you never, you never get to your goals. You never reach your dreams unless you do that. Who put the basketball in your hand? Oh, uh, I really give the credit to my brother, John. Um, physically, he didn't put the basketball in my hand, but I grew up watching him every day. I was a soccer player. I played soccer and basketball, but soccer was my sport. I wanted to be a professional soccer player, and I was good, but um, I watched him every day. I'd go to the gym with him after soccer practice, and he would just be in there working so hard. He had a trainer, and he'd be in there for hours. And at times it wasn't, you know, the right work that he was doing. He was overworking himself, but he worked so hard and I admired that. I mean, I, I wanted to be like that. And, you know, once I got to high school, I had a choice to make what I was going to work really hard at because I didn't want to be right in the middle and be mediocre at both sports. So I picked basketball so I could follow him. And he sort of showed me the ropes of working hard and literally putting everything into it or, um, you know, facing the reality of it not working out. That's, that's the choice I had. Nike came out with a shirt a couple of years ago that said lazy, but talented. And I walked into a gym one day and a kid was wearing high school kid was wearing the shirt lazy, but talented at practice. And before we even started practice, I just turned to him and I said, Andrew coach isn't in here yet, but you're the 11th guy on this team. You're a pretty talented kid, uh, but you're trying to crack like the top eight rotation. What do you think coach is going to think when he sees that? And he sort of looked at me, he went and changed. And then he said a couple of days later that he traded the shirt for something else. The reason I bring up that story is I'm curious for you, as you go into high school, what it was like to have this desire to work hard and to be highly driven and highly motivated and how that mapped onto maybe the high school experience for you. Uh, you know, going into high school, um, I started working really hard in ninth grade. That's when I really started pushing myself and waking up 6 a.m. before church, 6 a.m. before school, just training, 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 after school training. Um, but, you know, it, it, it really shaped my high school because I had to sacrifice so much. I was a guy that in high school, I didn't party. I had no social life. And this was something my mom was always concerned about. Um, my brothers always told me, you got to have more fun, man. You got to get out. You got to relax. But I didn't feel like I could. I felt like I had, you know, this, this, this dream that I couldn't, I, I couldn't sleep. Like I, I just, I had to go get it. I had, I knew someone out there was working harder than me. So I had to work, work, work. 
And I was a guy that was never on the, you know, the top charts for the, the ratings, uh, the national ratings. I never, you know, had the hype. I never had all that attention. So I always had a huge chip on my shoulder and something to prove. So it was important for me to continue to work and continue to sacrifice the parties, the drinking, the girls, everything that people do in high school, um, in order to see that, to see my dream come true. How did your friends or the people around you outside of your family react to that level of intensity or seriousness? Uh, they learned to accept it and just encourage me. Um, you know, I, I believe that based on who you are, you attract people that are very much like yourself or that have qualities similar to yourself. And I have friends that are similar to me. I have friends that are dedicated to what they love and that aren't party animals. None of my friends are party animals. They, my friends are very low key. Um, and they find their niche. They find something they love to do. And that's really what they work at. And they be, they decide to become successful at. You mentioned right off the bat that grandpa marched with Dr. King. What were some of the stories you heard growing up or some of the people you got to interact with as a result of grandpa being at the forefront of the civil rights movement? Uh, one of them has always been, uh, we call him Uncle Andy, but it's Andrew Young. And, you know, growing up as a child, he would be at Christmas dinners. He'd be at, you know, Thanksgiving. He'd be at all these holiday dinners and I'd get to interact with him. But I was just a kid. I didn't know. I, actually who he was. I didn't know what his impact was on my, you know, me living every day and the things I was able to do every day as an African-American in this country. And growing up, not until college, did I realize how amazing he was. Did I actually watch videos in, in classrooms and realize that's Uncle Andy marching next to Dr. King, you know? And, um, you know, it's a privilege and a blessing that I have people, I, I was able to grow up with people like that around me that were able to mentor me and, um, you know, just be around me. That's, that's a special, special blessing. And, you know, my grandfather was the, was the same way. There are questions to this day. I wish I had have asked him before he passed, but he was an amazing person that was doing the same stuff Dr. Young was doing that dedicated his life to make sure that black people in this country could, um, have the equal rights and, and, uh, you know, have a decent life. And I know you also had an experience going over to Africa as a kid that has helped shape how you see the world. Just talk about that experience a little bit. Absolutely. When I was, uh, when I was 11 or 12, I had the opportunity to go to Ghana, West Africa. We went to three cities, uh, Accra, um, uh, I can't remember the other two, but we went to three cities. We spent three weeks, one week in each city. And it was a life-changing experience. Even at that age, you go over there and you see at that age, when you're that young, you see things very simple. And I knew that people in, in the U.S. didn't struggle to eat. And when I went over there, people didn't have food to eat. That's literally what I saw and what I, what I knew. And that struck me as a young child. And that, and I started, I didn't totally, but I started putting the pieces of the puzzle together in my mind. What can I do to change that? And it sort of, the transition sort of happened perfectly because a few years later is when I really decided to take basketball serious and make that transition. And Why do you think that was? Why do you think that unlocked something in, inside of you? Because I, my mom is someone that has always said, use your blessings to bless other people. Um, this life is not just about you. And the older I, the older I got, the more I actually started to idolize Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali always would say things, um, I can't specifically quote him, but he had a quote that said, uh, you know, this is, you're basically renting your room on earth from God right now. And your job is to do it. Your purpose is to do as much good for other people as you can while you're renting that room. And 
that's amazing. That's that's sort of how I view my life and and my purpose is affecting other people's lives and transforming other people's lives with my blessings. Um so I mean that was that that trip for me really sparked sparked the plug for me and allowed me to have my eyes open and not take things for granted. Of course there are things I still take for granted to this day, but uh having food and having clean water are two things I do not take for granted. Um because, you know, from a young age, we would sit at the dinner table with my brothers and my family, and my dad wouldn't let us get up from the table unless we ate all of our food. And his comment would always be, when we left food on the table, he'd be, there are kids in Africa that, you know, would eat that. There are kids in Africa that are starving to death, and you're wasting food. And while that might be a bit extreme, it, it sent a message, and it sent a very vital, important message to us, like, don't be wasteful, because there are people that are in need and that don't have the things that, you know, we have every day. So there's an element of privilege that you have that maybe they don't have in Africa. Uh, parents get divorced as well. Just talk about that. How did that impact you? And if at all, as you went forward? Yeah, it was huge impact. That was the biggest, that was the first big, uh, that was the first big, uh, you know, mountain I had to climb in my life. Because here you are as a, as a kid and you think everything's perfect. You don't see the stuff that's actually going on behind closed doors in your house. You don't understand the drama, the underlying tensions between people in your house. Um, and here my parents were going through it clearly. And, you know, bam, it just, it seemed like it happened so quick. And, uh, one brother sort of gravitated towards my dad. The other gravitated was sort of in the middle. And then I gravitated towards my mom because I was the youngest. And, um, you know, looking back, you wish you had sort of the clarity to understand what's going on, but you didn't. And that's a thing that I really relied on my brothers. I really relied on my older brother, John, to really help me. We really bonded during that period. He really helped me and, and stood beside me to help me get through that period. Um, because that was a extremely tough time in my life. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, one of the two or three toughest times I've had to go through. What were some uh, memories that you have with your brothers during that time that you could look back and say, yeah, like that it was helpful that we had each other during that Going outside on the court um, after school, continuing to do what we did, train, work hard. And that's where basketball, I think basketball has been a blessing to me in so many ways. Um, and it helped me get through the divorce. It helped me have something to continue to focus on and, um, you know, continue to, you know, not allow all my attention to be, you know, in a, in the negative direction, to be in a positive direction. And, it, it, you know, the divorce overall taught me that everything is not going to be perfect. Things are going to fail. Um, things are not going to go your way, but you got to be persistent in your approach. You got to continue to, um, do what's right. You got to continue to be the best family member you can and do your best because things are going to fall through and that's life. If things aren't falling through, they're going to fall through soon and you just have to be prepared and be, um, you know, resilient. You mentioned that freshman year, you really have a dream and you're working towards this dream. What was the dream for you as a freshman? Can you, can you go back and sort of really paint the picture for us as far as what you were dreaming about and what you were thinking about back then? It was to be in the NBA. Um, once I, I, I would say about my junior year in high school, I realized I could be an NBA player. Why? I looked at other people. I had such a, I had such a strong confidence in myself and my work ethic. I didn't believe anybody was outworking me in the world. That's literally what I believed in high school. And while that may or may not be true, that type of confidence is what propels you to be successful and to 
be as good as you think you are. Where did that, where did the confidence come from? So I understand where the work ethic comes from. That's embedded from grandpa all the way. Parents are both hardworking. You see your brother's hardworking, but confidence, where, where did your confidence come from junior year to say, yeah, I can make it there when the feedback you're getting, it sounds like as far as rankings and accolades doesn't match up necessarily with your dream. Uh, it's a belief. It's a belief in yourself and a belief in God that he's going to, that he's going to work things out for you if you continue to sort of stay the course. And that was, that was my, that was in my head. And I don't know where I got that from a young age, but my mom was always by my side telling me, it doesn't matter about the rankings. You continue to work hard and this is going to work out. And a lot of the time you work extremely hard at stuff and it doesn't work out. That's the thing. That's looking back on all this, making it to the NBA. Working hard doesn't always get you what you want. Sometimes it takes luck. Sometimes it takes timing and all these other factors that go into things. And that's, I've had luck. I've had all types of stuff on my side, not just my doing. Um, so, you know, a lot of things are out of your control, but that's something, you know, I wasn't thinking about at that age. It was, if I work hard, I can get this. And I, and I was willing to work. And then there's a theme of faith. And, uh, so we often align faith with religion, but it doesn't necessarily have to align with religion for everybody. But for you, you had faith in God. You had faith that, Hey, I'm going to put in the work. If I put in the work, I'll get to where I want to go. And so there's this almost naive optimism of, you know, 16 year old Malcolm that helps you in that place. Whereas I think a lot of times as adults, we lose some of that faith or that naive optimism. But for you, it was like, yeah, that's, that's where I'm going to go. So it's cool that faith played a role. Absolutely. It's almost a blind work ethic. And, uh, you, you don't realize how much is out of your control at that age, but you realize how hard you can work. And for me, that was, I was going to outwork everybody around me. And, um, you know, granted things worked out. I ended up getting a scholarship to college and, you know, freshman year, I thought I could be an NBA player. I went in thinking, I'm going to be an NBA player. I just have to continue to work, and I have to dominate while I'm in college so I can go there. Um, as soon as I stepped on campus, I had a goal to finish college, to get a degree. You don't go to a school like UVA and um, with their, their level of academic excellence and not finish your degree. That's why you see a lot of the UVA guys finish college. One, they're, they're underestimated. That's sort of the mold. NBA people look at UVA as the, these guys aren't ready early, da, da, da. But also UVA guys want their education and I wanted my education. So that was my goal. But I was thinking, why can't I just get my education and go to the NBA? And, uh, you know, it worked out. There was, there were some ups and downs in college, but it worked out. You also had an opportunity to go to Harvard. Is that right? And I did. So you're coming out of high school and, uh, it's interesting because Wendell Carter, who's from Atlanta, also, debated going to Harvard or another really good academic school in, in basketball school in Duke and talks about going to Duke instead of Harvard. Um, but for you, how hard was that decision to go to UVA compared to Harvard? Extremely hard. Growing up, you know, my family's all about education. All I hear about is Harvard, Yale, Ivy League. Um, and, you know, my grandparents were the, were the main ones. If you get a scholarship to Harvard, that's writing your ticket for life. You take it. It's a no-brainer. So I remember um, I remember when I would talk on the phone when Tommy Amaker was recruiting me at Harvard, uh, sometimes I'd be in the in the you know room with my grandparents, and he'd get on the phone with my grandparents and, and work on them and talk to them, and they thought it was a no-brainer. And when I made the decision to go to UVA, they were extremely upset because um, they, I mean, they, they were just focused on education. No one saw me going to the NBA and, and doing this stuff, but they knew the education will last you. The NBA won't. So 
that was the focus. But my mom has always been supportive. My mom's always had my back. She's the one that realized, you know, I need a balance. I need to have a social life. I need to have great basketball. I need to have a good education. And UVA was a school that presented that for me. So obviously having the opportunity to go to a great school like UVA or an amazing school like Harvard, academically, you had to have done pretty well also in high school. What are the similarities between performing academically and competing on a court? Uh, so for me, my, my, uh, my stakes in the classroom were a little different because if I didn't have a B average in the classroom, I wasn't going to be able to play basketball or do whatever else I wanted extracurricular wise. And that was coming the, from, coming from mom, coming from mom, from middle school to high school up. Um, that was, that was the rule. And, uh, that always made me, that just stuck with me that, you know, my grades have to be, I have to work as hard in the classroom as I worked on the court. And while I don't think in high school I worked as hard in the classroom as I did on the court, I worked hard, and I worked hard enough to do well. And there were times in high school where I really struggled. I went to tough private schools that really challenged me. And there were times where I struggled. But my mom would stay up. People don't know this, but my mom would come home from work. She would, uh, you know, my mom's a college professor now. She would um, teach classes all day, come home from work at 9, pick us up from school, uh, she'd always be like an hour late after practice, but she'd pick us up. She'd come home, make dinner, and she'd stay up with me till 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning and help me get my homework done. I mean, that type of dedication from my mom has been um, – I just don't know any other moms that do it the way she did it. Um, so, you know, a lot has – a lot that I, you know, contribute to to her effort with me. As a parent of two, I'm curious, what are the traits or values that your mom possessed that helped you and your brothers – get to where you are today? You know, I don't think uh, me or my brothers realized it yet at a young age, but I think she portrayed um, the characteristic of, uh, I'd say, hard work, dedication, persistence, because at her job, she was working extremely hard. And at Morehouse, she has climbed the ladder. Now she's a provost at the college. And that's a big deal. That's a huge, especially for a woman at a, you know, male dominant college. That's a huge deal. It shows how dedicated, how smart, how driven she is. And, uh, you know, I think she sort of set the bar for us with our hard work and uh, with understanding you don't get anything unless you work hard. So, I mean, I think she, a lot of that is, is attributed to her. And being at UVA, academically hard, but big time basketball, not that Ivy League isn't big time basketball and certainly there have been some good uh, teams the last few years, but, you know, you're playing in, was it ACC? You know, ACC ball. Um, what's that like for you transitioning from high school to college and getting thrown into, you know, big time college basketball? For sure. You're thrown into the fire. And if you're not a guy that's redshirted, uh, immediately when you get to college, you're looked at as you're going to give us some minutes and they should be valuable minutes. And I was one of those guys. They didn't want to redshirt me. They wanted me to play right away. And that was tough. It was demanding, you know, coming from high school to college is a bigger jump than college to the pros because you get to college and these are guys that are really coming into their own, that are becoming grown men. And uh, you're sort of a scrawny high schooler. You're a step slow. Even though you were an elite player in high school, you're a step slow for college. And even the guys, the walk-ons are giving you trouble. You're playing one-on-one -on -one with people and you're getting beat. So you, And, you know, you just have a lot of long days. And, uh, you know, I look back on it with some of my friends that I went into UVA with, and we laugh about how we used to get destroyed in certain drills and um, how tough it was and what a grind it was. But that's really what prepared me for the NBA is is going through that. In your sophomore year, you get hurt and ended up redshirting. Talk about that adversity and what that was like for you. 
So that's that that was the other big test in my life. First was was the divorce and then second was this injury. And you know, at the end of my freshman season, I had a good freshman season and at the very end of ACC play, I get injured. It was sort of an injury that came on. Um I I fractured the navicular bone in my left foot and um they didn't know how it happened. It progressively got worse and worse till I couldn't walk or play anymore. That was basically a year long rehab. I went to I got surgery on it. Um, that, you know, at the end of the season and, uh, you know, they, they did a gastroc lengthening, which is basically the equivalent of, um, you know, tearing your Achilles and they wanted to release pressure off of the midfoot. So it was just necessary to do all that. So it was a twice as long recovery as it would have been. So I took a full year to recover, but that summer going into next year, I decided that I wasn't, that I wasn't going to play. I was going to redshirt. And, um, that was a really tough decision. Coach Bennett, um, wanted me to play, but he supported me when I, when I told him I, I thought it was best that I didn't play. And, you know, my, my vision has always been long term. It's not in the short term. It's not about rushing back after an injury. It's about where you're going to be in a year or two down the line and how, how you're going to, um, you know, how this is going to affect you at that point. And for me, it was about waiting and being patient and letting God work, letting God heal me and letting God shape me. Or, or shape things for me so that I could step back in into a good role on the team and be ready to play when I actually get back out there. I'm just so curious about that because you're talking about delaying gratification. Right. And I think we live in a world today where we get instant gratification. We get it from our phone, right? Someone likes an Instagram post or a tweet. We get that dopamine hit to our brain. Our, our phones are actually wired to give us that dopamine hit, to give us that instant gratification. There was an old psychological test called the marshmallow test where they would have yeah. kids come in, you know about that, right? Yeah. And they'd say, you can have one marshmallow or two if you wait. Um, but it sounds like you were into playing the long game and delaying gratification. Any idea where that came from for you? I think that came from, you know, my life growing up and never having things right away, never being a guy that had the hype, never being a guy that was ranked, never being a guy that people looked at and were like, this kid's amazing. Always being a guy that people were like, he's not quite good enough, so we're not going to give him any attention or we're not going to give him this opportunity to go to this elite camp. We're not going to going to an elite camp and being put in another gym in an auxiliary gym instead of being on the main court where all the co college coaches were watching. What did that do for you? Those experiences shaped my entire career. Uh, I remember going to the University of Florida when Shaka Smart was there, and they put me in an auxiliary gym, and I was playing really well. I was playing as well as the best players there. But they put me in an auxiliary gym, and no coaches came over there. And stuff like that, because Florida was a dream for me. It would have been a dream school to go to. Why? And Why Florida? I just loved it. I loved the colors. I loved the gators. I loved everything about it. I loved I loved the state and uh, the heat, the water, everything down there. But after that, uh, I wrote them off my list, and um, you know, I remembered that experience. I'm a my my story is one of an underdog. I'm not one that um, you know has ever had people fall out over me. And still to this point, I won Rookie of the Year, but a lot of people says it wasn't deserved. A lot of people say all types of stuff. Um, but I've learned to block that stuff out and to use it as motivation and to understand that my gratification for me, I don't expect it right now. I don't expect to go to the NBA. I didn't expect to go to the NBA and win rookie of the year and actually get that, um, you know, uh, attention and, and, uh, reward that quick, um, which was a blessing, which was totally different than my story has always been. Um, but it also makes me realize that even when that does happen, understand who you are and how this usually works out and be prepared to 
um, work your way up again. And, you know, that's what I felt like I experienced this season working my way up, you know, whether it was a trade, whether it was an injury, whether it was different things that happened this past season, I was working my way up again. And that's my story. And that's actually where I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable being an underdog and fighting against the odds. What is your reaction when Florida doesn't offer? What is your reaction when every NBA team passes on you in the NBA draft? How do you interpret that? I'm extremely angry. I'm more emotional than people think. People think I'm very stoic. People think um, nothing affects me. Things do affect me. Uh, I do think hard about things. I'm a thinker. I'm a warrior. I, I, I worry a lot about things. And uh, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And But I'm a guy that always turns the bad into good. I'm a guy that always... It's going to motivate me. This isn't going to tear me down. If Florida doesn't offer me, I remember it was Florida and Stanford were the two schools I really wanted to go to. I remember one day Stanford came in the gym. Um, my coach had him fly out. The guy came in the gym and watched me work out. This was my junior year, I think, of, of high school. I didn't have any, uh, maybe Wichita State and VCU, two mid-majors were my highest offers. I was going to commit there. And uh, Stanford came in, watched me work out. And they said they didn't like me and they went back. And that was just another, that was just another, you know, dash on my list. Like, okay, that's someone else that will underestimate me and completely regret this decision when I go and I, and I play really well in college. Um, so experiences like that, I honestly give credit to, to colleges and then the people that have underestimated me and told me I only play mid major that I, um, you know, I haven't, I, I, I'm not athletic enough. My feet are too big. My feet are too slow. Um, that I don't shoot well enough that tell me all types of stuff in order to, uh, you know, that's, that's what will, what will continue to give me my motivation. Worry, maybe anxiety, maybe, um, you mentioned anger. Uh, I have this theory that our mindset for preparation should actually be different than our mindset for performance. And the theory goes something like this, humble in preparation, but confident, or I even argue arrogant in performance. I like to take it one step further than confident because I've seen people that are confident crumble. I think arrogance is an, a value of yourself, feeling like you're important, feeling like it can't get shaken. It's almost unreasonable. And uh, the other one that I love is anxious in preparation, but fearless in performance. Um, so as I hear you talk about being a warrior and, and actually listening to the quote unquote haters or, or whatever you want to call them and using that in preparation, I'm curious if that theory, and I've got about mm, 15 of these, actually like 30 of these that are different in preparation and performance. I'm curious if that resonates with you at all and, and how you think about your mindset for preparation and your mindset for performance. Absolutely. You're, you're, uh, I would be lying if I said that being very good at what you do doesn't, doesn't, um, you know, promote a little arrogance. You, in the, at least in the NBA, I can speak for my profession. You have to be a little bit egotistical to be, to be playing in the NBA. Cause if you're not, they're guys with a lot of ego with, with loads of confidence that will come out and destroy you. If you don't really believe, if you don't believe you're better than you are, you have to believe you're better than you are in order to survive in this league. It's too competitive. And, but it does resonate with me that you have to be humble in your approach. You have to understand this might not work out, but I'm going to put everything I have into it and I'm going to, and I'm going to do everything I can to make it work out. And then when you get to competition, your mindset has to change. You have to be focused out in and understand, look, I put all the hard work in. No one's outworked me. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to shine regardless. No one can stop me. That's your mindset. No one can stop me tonight. And in training, your mindset isn't that. Your mindset is, this is what I have to work on. These are my weaknesses. I have to get better at this in order to be unstoppable. 
the guy that I've always studied, and I, I would imagine most people in, in the NBA uh, that are around your age study, is it's just Kobe's mindset. And you listen to Kobe talk, and he's so clear on you know what he needed to do in preparation and the work ethic and almost maniacal work ethic. But then he steps across the line, and he's the Black Mamba. And I think those games where you would see him you know, miss seven shots in a row and keep shooting. Outsiders don't get it. But for him, it's like, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep gunning. Uh, and so uh, to me, the the other one is like, prepare like a pro, but perform like a kid, right? Like those are very different. But at the end of the day, if you're still, and I've seen pro athletes do this, they're trying to perform like a pro and they're, they're just a stress ball and every shot has to be perfect. And the perfectionism can be helpful in preparation, but can be paralyzing in performance. So it's like, uh, you know, perfectionist in preparation, but adaptable in performance, right? And so you really look at this dichotomy. And for me, at least, it creates a framework for mindset that can help people. Because in my experience, a lot of pro athletes are really good with the preparation, but the lights come on and they don't shift out of that perfectionism. They don't necessarily shift out of that worry or that anxiety or that humility. I've seen so many performers stay humble in performance. Well, you know, this is, this is all about perspective, right? So you know, you have to understand for me, especially I'm a perfectionist with everything I do, especially with basketball, the way I eat, the way I train, the way I lift, the way I shoot it. My practices have to be perfect. You can ask any trainer, anybody that helps rebound or, or pass to me during the day. I have to be perfect in my training sessions. I can't leave the next drill until this shot comes off the right finger. It can go in, it can be a swoosh, it can be all that. But if it didn't feel perfect, I'm going to do it over and over. And sometimes some, it's a blessing and a curse because sometimes I finish the drill and then I spend another 25 minutes getting the perfect shot because I'm completely OCD in my head. That that drives you to be great, though. That does drive you to be great. It bleeds into other parts of your life because everything can't be perfect and your approach to everything becomes too rigid. And that's one of the things I've realized about my life. I'm too rigid with stuff and not flexible, but that's what's been my blessing on the court. And then you get to the game in the locker room before the game. You have to understand you have to go through it. This is about perspective. I'm not going to be perfect tonight. I'm not going to make every shot. I made every shot in practice. So that's going to hire my chances of making a lot of shots in the game. And you have to understand that going in. What do you do to shift out of the perfectionism, either in the locker room before, routine-wise, to try to get you out of that, you know, it has to come off the finger, it has to be perfect, because in the game, you know, it's not about perfection anymore, it's about finding a way. It's seeing the big picture. It's understanding, let your, let your work you know, work for you. You've put in the work, go out there, be a kid again. Like you said earlier, I think that's great. I think it's work like a pro and play like a play like a kid. I think it's important to go out there and relax and make sure you have fun. If you have fun and you're not stressed about making shots, you're not stressed about money, you're not stressed about all these other things, these outside distractions, you'll be able to allow your work to come through and all that, all your hard work will come to fruition. And that's how I believe successful people function every day. They work, they over-prepare, because I think over-preparation is the key. But then you get there and you relax. You relax and just let it come. I know in college, I read an article where you would yawn before games. Uh, so I'm just curious about that, because uh, that just seems like something intentional that you would do. And this podcast is called the Intentional Performers Podcast. So uh, walk us through where that came from when you started doing that and if it's something you still do today. That is something I started during high school, um, and I'm not sure when I started it before that, but high school was the point in my in my you know young basketball career where I started feeling pressure to perform, where I started understanding, oh man, these every high school game now actually 
you know, there could be a huge gain or a huge loss on the other end because they're college coaches. This is, you know, thousands of dollars in free money to go to any school in the country if you perform well. And, you know, the way I relieve stress before a game is before the game, I'm completely silent. I usually don't listen to music. I'm just in there. I'm sort of in a meditation state in the locker room. But once I get to the court, once I'm about to step on the court, we break the huddle and the starting five walks out. Or when I'm coming off the bench and I'm checking into the game, you'll see me let out a big yawn because that's me like relaxing myself. It's not purposeful. It's totally unconscious, but I do it every time. I'll do it coming back into the second half. I'll do it, but it relaxes me. It relaxes my mind and it's my body's way of telling me you're ready, but I'm relaxing you right now. So you can go out there and perform. When you're sitting in the locker room, you said you sort of get into a meditative state. What paint that picture for us a little more? Uh, usually in the locker room, um, you know, especially since I've been in the NBA, I'm sitting in there quiet. Same with college, actually. Now that I think about it, I'm sitting in there quiet. There are a lot of guys that have to be up dancing. There are a lot of guys that have to be up doing stuff, telling jokes, doing different things, talking and laughing. But then there's some guys that are completely, they're so dialed in, they just want to sit there and they want to either zone out or really think about what they have to do that night. And that's been my approach. I'm either very, I'm very zoned out or I'm very focused on this is what my defender, uh, likes to do on defense. This is what he likes to do on offense. This is how I can attack him. This is what has worked for me in past games and what I would think will work for this specific team. Um, those are the types of things that are going through my mind before the game so that when I get on the court, I don't have to think I can just play. Are you visualizing? Are you actually seeing your opponent? Absolutely. If you can't see it, then, you know, you don't have the imagination to play in the NBA. Uh, I, I'm not sure I know a guy in the NBA that doesn't see it before they get on the court. You have to be able to go in and not just, unless you're James Harden or one of these greats that can go in. But even for guys like that, I think they have specific approaches in the way they think about the game and visualize specific moves that they're going to make and shots they're going to take in order to be successful that night. You said something earlier that just caught my attention. You said the transition from high school to college was harder than college to pro. And I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes and uh, I was watching that draft and you know, I I'd watched you play a lot and I'm sure you hear this from other people, but you know, I was just shocked as far as when you went in that draft and I think it was 36. Is that yep, right? Yep. So, I mean, we can basically say that every team in the NBA passed up on you because uh, those that didn't have a draft pick could have traded up and, and could have gotten you. I'm just curious about how you go from there to being the rookie of the year. And I think I looked this up. I think you're the first second round pick to win rookie of the year since like 1954 or something insane. So it's almost delusional. Like it's almost delusional for you to sit there. And I'm not saying that you were necessarily honed in or keyed on winning rookie of the year. But if, if that story was being told, people wouldn't necessarily believe it. So I'm just curious about why that transition I'm going to say it was easier. I'm sure it wasn't easy, but was easier going from college to pro than high school to college and how you had enough gumption or self-belief in, in yourself to do what you did that, that rookie season. Uh, you know, so I think, uh, you know, to answer your, your first question, I think going from high school to college is a harder transition than from college to pro. I think that's the case because college prepares you for the pros. College, there's a certain level of physicality and a certain level of focus and mental toughness that your college coaches build in you in order to prepare you to be elite at that level and then to transition to the next to the next level where for the players that are ready for that. Um, and in high school, it's not. In high school, you're playing against a, a bunch of guys that, you know, a lot of teams are just have guys on there that are playing a bunch of sports that are just doing that for fun. 
And that's not really preparing you nearly as much. Um, so when you get to college and everybody's uh, immediately is, is locked in like a pro college players prepare like pros, that type of work ethic and that type of grind you have during the summers. And then going into the season, you're preparing like an NBA player, like an elite athlete. And in high school, you're not, you don't have that drive. You don't know what that next level mentality looks like. And in college, you have a way better taste in your mouth of what that next level mentality looks like. Even though you're not totally prepared for it, your body's built way more like a grown man and you're way more mentally prepared for the NBA style. And then, so you go in the second round, you get to Milwaukee. Um, what's going through your mind from draft night to the first time you step on the, a professional court? I'd be lying if I say I went into Milwaukee um, with a goal of winning rookie of the year. That's ridiculous. I did not. Um, and honestly, that was never my goal, even throughout the first season. You know, going back though on on you know being drafted in the in the second round was really right up my alley. I wanted to get drafted and in the I thought I should have been a lottery pick. I was confident I should have been a lottery pick, but I knew I wasn't going to. I knew there was no chance. Um, but I thought I I could be in the I would be in the first round. Uh, every every team passed up on me. I remember all the teams, all the names, and that was the ultimate final piece of motivation I needed to go into the NBA and have a great rookie year. And um, you know, I have a great agent. He's he's a legend, but he he really placed me perfectly um, on the bucks and, uh, you know, allowed me to, uh, flourish in the right system. And, um, you know, playing for Jason Kidd, he was a legendary point guard. And I think that really helped me win rookie of the year. He basically put the ball in my hands and said, you know, you gotta, you gotta be one of the leaders on this team and you gotta be, you know, the ball handler and the decision maker on this team. And my goal rookie year was to go out there and be confident and play next to Giannis. And that's, that's even tough if you're eight year, you, you know, it's your 10th year in the league playing next to a superstar like that, being ready to shoot and being ready to, um, you know, do the things you have to in order to, you know, make sure that he continues to win and, and continues to play at that high level. But, um, you know, going through that, that first year was tough. There are ups and downs. You don't know if you're going to be put in the G League the next night after a few bad games. You don't know what's going on and your head's still spinning from the summer and being drafted. But, um, you know, I was lucky enough to go to a to a great organization that had a coach that believed in me and that had uh, teammates that you know wanted to see me do well and that and that believed I could really contribute. What do you know now that you didn't when you entered? That you, I didn't know the grind of the NBA season, the length and the, um, you know, the uh, how tough the NBA season can be on your body and your mind. I think people forget that. I think fans forget that. I think people forget how long that season is until you go through it. And unless you're an NBA player, you don't fully have a, have a grasp on how many games, 82 games, and then plus playoffs is. That is a lot of games, and it's a lot of wear and tear on your body. Um, it's a lot. It's it's a lot on you and on your mind. It might wear on your mind more than your body, and that's what people forget. They don't understand. You are so locked in all the time. It's exhausting to be locked in. You're using so much mental energy to stay locked in and focused uh, for the next game, the next night, because you you play Steph Curry and then you go play Chris Paul, and it's just like it never ends, and it never ends for you know seven months, and that is extremely tough, especially if you're uh, you know anywhere from 18 to 22 years old entering the NBA playing against the best players in the world. It's extremely hard. So I think the the long the 
sort of the longevity of the season is one thing I definitely didn't understand. And then understanding you can't overwork yourself. You have to pace yourself. The NBA game is about pace, like literally and figuratively playing with pace on the court, but then pacing yourself off the court, understanding, um, you know, what to eat, understanding when to get extra shots after practice, understanding when to just pull the plug, just be like, look, I'm gonna go get treatment and go home and rest. And that's something I've had to learn, you know, all three years. I'm continuing to learn that. What do you do to give your mind a rest? Uh, I wish I could fish. That would be something huge for me. I wish I could get on a boat and go out and fish or just stand on the side of the shore somewhere and fish. Did you fish growing up? Yeah, I love fishing. That's like that's like my favorite thing to do outside of basketball is fish. Um, really, I watch a lot of movies. I'm a movie guy. Before you go I, into movies, let's stay with fishing. What's your mindset like when you're fishing? I am totally zoned out. I'm literally thinking about what's swimming around in the water, you know, and uh, that is so so freeing and so tranquilizing for me and peaceful. There's really nothing like it for me. I think everybody has their thing. Some people love to read. Um, some people love to hike. Some people love to do all types of stuff. But mine is fishing. It doesn't take any stress on my body. I already have a profession where I'm stressing my body. I can literally sit there and uh, but it and and still get some type of gratification and some type of comfort, like competition with yourself and in the fish and, and fishing. Cause there's a, there's a certain level of skill it takes to do it. You've mentioned competition now a couple of times. Talk about your competitive spirit and how that shows itself on the basketball court. Uh, yeah, I'm a guy that plays both ends. And, you know, for people that don't watch basketball, that means being a guy that contributes on offense and defense. You see a lot of guys that, you know, just want to score and don't play any defense. But I'm a guy that's going to be as good on defense as he is on offense. I pride myself on my defense first, and then offense comes after. And I think that takes a certain level of competitiveness. You know, you look at guys like Marcus Smart. He's extremely competitive. He's a guy that wants to be as good on defense as he is on offense. And I think that's that's the way the game should be played. That's an old-school approach, but that's the way I play the game, and that, I think, is what reflects my competitiveness. You've had an interesting summer. Uh, I saw you actually in Las Vegas. I was out at Summer League and uh, sitting in the stands and, and saw you there. What made you go to, to Las Vegas and actually take in Summer League? Uh, you know, one, we have a new coach, uh, Coach Bud, um, and he encouraged all the guys to come out there. So whoever could make it out there made it out there. Uh, we trained and played a little bit. Um, so I wanted to, to gel a little bit with him, the new coaching staff, and my teammates. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to just show, show some support um, for the guys. Summer League is honestly a little bit stressful for me. I don't like the attention that NBA players get. Um, I don't like walking around the gym and everybody watching you. Every, you know, walking around the entire city, everybody's always watching you. Everybody knows who you are. Uh, everybody's there for the same thing. And I don't like being around, you know, all the hoopla. Um, but it was necessary to go out there and, um, you know, support uh you know, our summer league team, because we have Sterling, we have um, DJ, and then we have Dante, and then whoever else could possibly make the team. I want to support those guys and make sure they know, like, you know, I don't I don't think I'm too good to at least come in and support you guys. Do you consider yourself to be an introvert? Uh, for sure. For sure. Does that help you, hinder you? How do you think about that? I don't, I don't think it hinders me. I think... Um, because I think I think people have a misconception about introverts and extroverts. I think when uh, a lot of people that don't actually know the term or understand the the terms, they think an introvert means you know not as confident. And I think that's a misconception. I think introverts are people that simply shy away from 
the the publicity and shy away from having to be social and and going out of your way to start a conversation and to continue to keep a conversation up. I'm I'm not a guy that that wants to do that stuff and a, and a guy that um you know is really open to that stuff. I will do it if I have to, but I'm you know it's it's just really not my uh, cup of tea. And you've been around some of the best leaders in in the world, and also you took on a big leadership role at UVA. What do you think about leadership? How do you define leadership? I define leadership as the ability to speak up when necessary and the ability to listen when necessary. I think it goes both ways. I think people um, get it get it twisted when they when they think that. Um, a leader is someone that's always barking orders to people and demanding pe- what people do. I think sometimes a leader is the quietest one out there that's leading by example, that's doing everything right, that's outworking everybody, and um, does it all without saying a word. And that's the type of leadership I had growing up. And until I got, until after my injury at UVA, that's the type of leader I was. But then after my injury, I stepped up and became the leader that I needed to be for that team. And I think I think the term leadership is very can be very versatile. I think there are different types of leaders. I don't think there's one, um, you know, hard cut, you know, one type of leader that that you can be. So you just got back from Africa. Uh, talk about that experience, and also I want to just give you a platform and a, a megaphone to promote anything that you think deserves a megaphone. For sure, I uh, just had the opportunity to go to um, Tanzania. Um, and, you know, since I was a child, of course, we talked about it already. Africa has always, always, it's always been a passion of mine to, um, you know, affect people's lives that are, you know, whether suffering from poverty, suffering from not having clean water. Um, but as of late, I have partnered with, um, Chris Long, plays for the Philadelphia Eagles. And, um, with him and his organization, he has a nonprofit called Water Boys that's doing, um, that's building wells, um, that, uh, you know, allow people in rural parts of Tanzania to have clean water. Um, so they're doing amazing work. They already have a lot of wells built. Um, they've ser- already served thousands of people. Um, so I went there in Tanzania to, um, to look at the projects, to really look at the difference between people that have water, how they're living and people that don't have water. And that's really the, where you, that's really how you see how much water really affects people's lives and uh, what what difference it can make for someone. You don't need all the all the extra, you know, designer. You don't need all the extra, you know, whether it's furniture in your house, anything. A lot of the time, all you need is water. All you need is the necessities. And water is a necessity that everybody is uh, is deserving of. Um, but for me, I've I've recently um, started my own uh, my own organization um, from the Chris Lown. Chris Long Foundation um, called the called Hoops 2 and uh, right now I've agreed with Chris Long to uh, be the first NBA partner. So I will have now I will be able to grow the business in the NBA. He's grown it in the NFL. He has a bunch of partners over twenty five, I think, in the NFL. Now I will grow it in the same way, but in the NBA and start getting guys to help me fundraise. So I'll try to get a guy on every team. Um, so if guys are interested in uh, you know, making a difference in, in Tanzania, making a difference in East Africa, because that's where it's based and where it's going to expand, um, then I would love to have guys on board in the NBA to help me raise money and to help raise awareness for people over there that are living without clean water. Um, but right now, I've, I've, I've got four or five guys on board. 
Um, and you know, the list is growing. I'm continuing to do more research on what needs to be done. And, uh, you know, me and Chris Longer are in constant communication about, um, you know, ways we can continue to grow his foundation, continue to grow my organization and make sure that, um, you know, we have the impact and we, when we meet the goals that, uh, you know, the organization wants to meet. How is your perspective different this time around than it was when you were a little kid and, and just going over there with your family? Uh, at, at this point, I understand what it takes. It's not like, let me bring some gallons of water over for these people. Cause then once you leave, they drink all the water and they have no more. You have to get this. And that's why I took, I got my master's in college and public policy. And I started to understand that how much policies and uh, laws affect how people live every day and in structure and government structure. And, um, you know, and I really learned about the term sustainability and sustainability is being able to, um, sort of, you know, excuse me, using the word again, but sustain, um, a certain style of living. For example, in Africa, you don't want to go over there and give them a bunch of food and, um, and then, and then leave if they don't have a way to sustain it. A sustainable source would be growing food, would be, you know, having a farm and having cattle and stuff like that, which a lot of African people do, a lot of Tanzanians do. But with clean water, there is no sustainable source of water. And, you know, while I was over there, I learned that there's a difference between groundwater and surface water. Surface water is anywhere from, you know, 50 feet, 100 feet below the, below the surface. That's where people are digging big holes. Um, to just pull up filthy water, to pull up, pull up contaminated water and drink that in these big buckets for their family. And, you know, with the help of water boys, they're building wells in the ground that are going, you know, 300 feet down to get groundwater, which is the earth's water, which is pure water. And, you know, that allows them to have a clean drinking source. So, um, you know, it's about sustainability and giving them methods of, of sustainability that they can use when we leave and we're not there to give them, you know, the resources that we have, because that's not what it's about. It's not about going in there and giving them everything they need. It's about going there and giving them ways that they can continue to live and continue to thrive after you leave. Well, I think that's a beautiful place for us to stop. Uh, I want to thank you for all the work you're doing. Uh, it's inspiring. Uh, it's making me think about how I might be able to help. Uh, so thank you for that. And even though you're not a lawyer, uh, like some of your uh, family members, I'm sure you're making your family proud with the work that you're doing. Uh, and I'm sure they're proud of also uh, the impact that you have on the basketball court as well. But thank you for being you and, and thanks for sharing your journey and also how you intentionally set your mind. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I would be lying if I said that being very good at what you do doesn't, doesn't um, you know, promote a little arrogance. You, in the, at least in the NBA, I can speak for my profession. You have to be a little bit egotistical to be, to be playing in the NBA. Because if you're not, they're guys with a lot of ego with, with loads of confidence that will come out and destroy you if you don't really believe, if you don't believe you're better than you are. You have to believe you're better than you are in order to survive in this league. It's too competitive. And, but it does resonate with me that you have to be humble in your approach. You have to understand this might not work out, but I'm going to put everything I have into it and I'm going to, and I'm going to do everything I can to make it work out. And then when you get to competition, your mindset has to change. You have to be focused, dialed in and understand, look, I put all the hard work in. No one's outworked me. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to shine regardless. No one can stop me.
That's your mindset. No one can stop me tonight. And in training, your mindset isn't that. Your mindset is, this is what I have to work on. These are my weaknesses. I have to get better at this in order to be unstoppable.